Thank you so much for leading us in worship. Thank God for that. Good morning. Great to be with you. Hope you've had a tremendous Christmas season and it's extending onward for you over the course of these coming days. You know, we haven't had our whole family together yet. We're actually going to do the final exchange of gifts still to come, I think somewhere in the next week or two. And that's the way it is with extended family, isn't it? And you are extended family. And if you're visiting here today, well, the warmest of greetings, and I hope you feel right at home as we've gathered to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, as I was trying to prepare a passage months back, thinking about the Christmas season, realizing that this particular Sunday would fall almost right in the middle between Christmas and New Year's, I was looking for a passage of Scripture that could bridge the two concepts together, the concept of Christmas and Jesus Christ's entrance into this world, as well as the idea of New Year's and the whole idea of new beginnings. And as I was thinking about that, my mind went to Isaiah chapter 61, which I hope now you are turning to. And the reason why we chose this for today is this, that on one hand, this is a messianic promise, a prophecy delivered eight centuries prior to Christ's coming powerful. And it speaks of Christ's entrance into this world and his earthly ministry. So there's your Christmas story on one hand. But on the other hand, Isaiah 60, the chapter before, speaks of the New Jerusalem. Key word new. In Isaiah 65 and 66, it speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. Key word new. So what I want to do with you is to bridge together today, okay? We're going to be bridging Christmas and New Year's because God is in the business of doing new things. Uh, Lamentations 3 speaks of new mercies, doesn't it? The passage we'll be considering for communion tonight speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 of God developing, creating new creation type people. Jesus spoke of this new commandment, I give unto you. And of course, as we've just said, there's this idea of new heavens and new earth. So we want to bridge now. We want to understand how all this fits together into the big scheme of things. Christ's birth, death, resurrection, ascension, return, and so on, into the ushering of new heavens and new earth, the master plan of God unfolding before our very eyes. And Isaiah 61 It's going to help us do that. So if you found your way there now in your Older Testament, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And for the sake of time, we're simply going to cover today down through verse 9. And here we find that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness, you see, for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. 
They will be called orcs of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. And they will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. And instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they'll rejoice in their inheritance. So they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. And all who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. So we're going to look at these words And we're going to try to bridge together, you and me, Christmas and New Year's, Christ's entrance into this world, and God doing new things to do that. We're going to look to our Lord in prayer. Our fathers, we come before you now. We're coming before you as people who, with the scriptures open, because we're interested not in what a pastor has to say, or what the God of the universe has revealed. We're asking that you address us at our critical point of need. If there are any in these three morning services, the fourth tonight, that come spiritually curious, but have not put faith and trust in Jesus, speak profoundly to that heart. For the one who's religious, but is a religious unbeliever. Press truth into that heart. We want to be able to bridge. Bridge what was penned by Isaiah eight centuries prior to Christ. With 2013 going into 2014 people. What's more important than a new year is to experience new birth. To be a new creation. To know what it truly means that the old has passed away. So, Father, we embrace the newness, the richness of your grace and mercy. So in these moments together, again, we're praying that you will warm these hearts of ours and engage these minds of ours and shape these wills of ours. Father, again, we've come here now to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Swiss watch. 
Through the years, the advertisement was always that it's your timeless peace. But something happened to that timeless peace. The timeless became time-bound. From 1900 to 1967, the Swiss were the leading watchmakers of the world. But in 1967, when digital technology was patented, the Swiss rejected the new in favor of the traditional ball bearings, gears, and the mainsprings that have been used to make these watches, you see, for the years. Unfortunately, maybe though the world was not in sync with the Swiss watch people. The world was ready for something new, and so Seiko, a Japanese company, picked up on the digital patent and became the leading watch manufacturer almost overnight. And here's what captures my attention. 50,000 of the 67,000 Swiss watchmakers went out of business almost overnight because they refused to embrace the new. And it was not until years later that the Swiss began to regain their position in the marketplace with the creation of the Swatch watches. It's critically important as you and I inch our way into a new year that we're able to distinguish between the timeless, the time-bound, and the timely. And we can't confuse the three. Now, what God has done is this. As the timeless one... In the fullness of time, he sent Christ into this world, the timely event. So the timeless and the timely are working together as God creates something new in this world that seems so old in sin. But he does not allow these people who want to continuously to embrace the old wineskin approach to living to carry on with their traditions for the sake of tradition. He offers them a new wineskin approach to truth, where the timeless and the timely now combine in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And here you and I find that all of this is promised eight centuries prior through the pen of Isaiah, who now wants to be able to articulate for you and for me Two significant fulfillments that he finds as God reveals this truth to and through him. Fulfillments that have direct bearing upon the way in which you and I go about living our lives. As we inch our way through these verses, I want you to continuously process the tension between the timeless, the timely, and the time bound. And continuously ask yourself the question, am I maintaining a connection between the timeless and the timely? Or do I just settle for the time bound experience? 
of the past. Two significant fulfillments found here in these verses. And the first we're going to phrase like this, number one, that God, through Christ's ministry, God fulfills his purpose for his people. Now, we're going to look at that from verses 1 down through verse 3. But to do so, we're going to have to bear in mind, I'm going to be looking with you at the two comings of Jesus Christ. Because in verse 1 down through verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, I want you to embrace this with me as we are now going to begin looking at Christ's purposeful first coming. Now, in verse 1, can you spot the Trinity? The Trinity is already operative here in this opening verse. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, where it says, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. The Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. The Sovereign Lord is the first member of the Trinity. The phrase on me refers to Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, because this is a prophecy that is being delivered via Isaiah. And you and I are informed here that this one that you and I know as Jesus Christ is saying that the Lord has anointed me. Throughout your Older Testament, priests were anointed by oil. What distinguishes us here in our minds is that here is a statement where Jesus Christ is saying it is not of oil but of the Spirit that this new ministry that is about to unfold in His first coming is blessed. Now, as a result of this anointing, I want you to look for that little word T-O. It's just going to continuously appear and reappear in these verses. Because that little word T-O, too, refers to Christ's mission statement. And in this corporate America of ours, where people are caught up in mission statements, value statements, and vision statements, notice how in eternity past, the triune God established this mission statement for the second member of the Trinity, governed by a series of little T.O.s. Let's check them out. He says, among other things, that his purpose involves to preach the good news to the poor. Now, what grips your attention and mine at the very onset here is that the good news didn't wait for the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, to be developed for humanity. Why, even in the Older Testament, the Gospel is being described as good news. And the good news is this, that Jesus Christ comes into this world not merely to be a great teacher, though he was, not merely to be a great example, though he was, but to be the perfect sacrifice to go to that cross and die for our sins, you are now connecting Bethlehem to Calvary. This is the good news that you and I do not have to pay the penalty for our sins. The good news is that the anointed one, as established in this covenant in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, 
communicated eight centuries prior via Isaiah has got some good news for you and for me to embrace. Now, you'll notice that it says to preach good news to the poor. When you allow for your mind to begin to walk the streets with Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will notice that this is a generalized statement. The poor had a natural awareness of the fact that they were needy. They were conscious of the fact they were lacking. They were therefore the first to embrace the ministry and the scope of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Jesus also warned the rich and spoke of the rich as to how difficult it is for them to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Remember the eye of the needle illustration. He's saying then, those that are poor in spirit, which the Beatitudes speak of, are part of those individuals that God is operative in drawing to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. We've got to recognize our spiritual, our spiritual poverty before the perfect riches of the sovereign second member of the Trinity. William Booth experienced incredible persecutions through the years. He and his Salvation Army members. But late in life, he began to receive award and recognition for all that he had achieved. King Edward VII, in fact, invited him to Buckingham Palace in 1904. And he was recorded as having said by the press, you are doing a great work, General Booth. And when the king asked Booth to write in his autograph album, the old man, who at this point was 75 years of age, took pen in hand and summed his life's work with this phrase, Your Majesty, some men's ambition is art. Some men's ambition is fame. Some men's ambition is gold. My ambition is the souls of men. The general is echoing the voice of his Messiah. Good news. Good news. There's a second T.O. I don't want you to miss it here because it goes on to say that he has sent me. See the commissioning? He has sent me to bind up the broken hearted. Now Isaiah is beginning to couple together various illustrations for the gospel mindset. He uses a financial illustration to help us to recognize our spiritual poverty. Now he uses a medical illustration as he speaks of to bind up the brokenhearted because it was a medical term. He is the, the first-ranking cardiologist, you see, this Jesus Christ. But there's this binding up of the fact that the heart has been broken by sin over the course of time. So I was inching into the sanctuary Tuesday night 
I was struck with the fact that within my own little zone of movement, there was this individual friend greeted me, countenance pure joy, laughter in the eyes. You ever see laughter in the eyes? I asked, what are you thankful for? And she said, it's family. I made it perhaps a foot further, and there was somebody there to greet me with tears flowing down cheeks. I put hand on shoulder, which I typically do, to talk and ask what was going on. And he said, family. Family. What they share in common is a core value. What they don't share in common is their experience with emotion. What's fascinating is that the great cardiologist comes along and he binds the broken heart. I have a friend who is making his way through Europe and he heard a merchant calling out from a balcony over the streets. I fix broken things. I fix broken things. My friend was drawn to this particular phrase. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Do you come here heavy today? Weighed down? Like in Pilgrim's Progress? Feel so burdened? Sometimes that heart feels as though the weight of the world has made its way into your own body. And what you desperately need is the one who is sovereign to lift that burden from you and put together that which feels like it's crumbling, crumbling apart. It's your Jesus. Watch how personal he is as he makes his way through the streets of life. There's a third T.O. that launches out, grabs our attention to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness, you see, for the prisoners. Now the imagery moves from the financial through the medical to the political to proclaim freedom, the emancipation proclamation for all of humanity and release from darkness the prisoners and perhaps Your mind, my mind, goes, for example, to Iran. The Iranian-American pastor Saeed Abedini has been held in Iran since 2012 and transferred to a notorious penitentiary where he's been facing life-threatening conditions. And his wife has courageously been speaking on on his behalf. He's been charged with promoting Christianity. Where simultaneously in Iran, you have the former FBI agent, Robert Levinson, who has been held hostage now for five, make it six years. 
And what we are longing for is to be able to embrace this idea of the one who sets the captive free. But as Jesus would come along, and as Isaiah builds the thinking for the person, all of that which is being described here has got a footing, has got a base, has got a, has got a calendar statement that is shaped by, shaped by a chapter. Leviticus chapter 25. It was called the year of Jubilee. Because in the year of Jubilee, what God had established was that debts were canceled, new beginnings take place, and land which had previously been sold off to be able to pay off debts is returned to the original owner. Now, let's say you're Jewish and you were living in that time period. Like me, let's say we have an illness and expenses and find it necessary to sell our land. Now, that price was regulated in accordance with the fact that at the end of the 50-year period of time, all debts are canceled, all land was given back to the one who originally owned it. You could never lose your land in Israel beyond that 50-year period. If there are only five years until the year of Jubilee, obviously you're not going to want to give much for the use of my land if there's only five years remaining, as you would if there were 45 years until the year of Jubilee. But what fascinates us is at the time of the year of Jubilee, debts are canceled, land's paid back, and furthermore, instead of, instead of carrying on, feeling weighed down, the burden is lifted and people are freed. And Jubilee was announced with the blowing of the trumpet which occurred on the Day of Atonement. When you and I track what's happening, it's all part of what we will call the entire redemptive cycle, where the Day of Atonement in Israel's cycle of feasts was designed to ultimately present the coming of the Messiah to earth. And what strikes us is that this very year of Jubilee is announced on the Day of Atonement, and in Matthew chapter 24, there is what's known as the blowing of the trumpets pertaining to the return of Christ. Again, what stands behind Isaiah's writings here, those who had lost their property, got their property back. It was a time of freedom. It was a time of joy. All of this then converges at the beginning of verse 2, where you and I are informed, isn't this such a New Year's Day concept to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Circle that word, year. Notice the next phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. Circle the word, day. But draw a double line after the word favor and before the phrase, and the day. And let's now allow ourselves to position our bodies in a synagogue. 
Because in a synagogue, Jesus Christ is about to enter into the synagogue in Nazareth as now this appears on the screen. And as it appears on the screen, you and I find that Jesus Christ is about to reference Isaiah 61. Now, I want you to keep Isaiah 61 on your lap open. Keep comparing what you see there. And I want you to find out and figure out with me, why does Jesus stop where he does in his recitation of this passage? Keep comparing Isaiah 61, verses 2 and 3, to this. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and then on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. I love this next phrase, don't you? As was his custom. The second member of the Trinity was a weekly worshiper. And he stood up to read, as was typical in synagogues. You would stand up to read and then sit down to teach. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Coincidence? No. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? But you're reading Isaiah 61, and you're expecting him to read on. But instead of reading on, what does he do? He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Question. Why didn't he keep reading? Answer. All that he read pertained to the first coming. What follows in Isaiah 61 pertains to his second coming. Isn't this powerful what Jesus is doing? He's not going to lead them on and think they're going to get more than he intends with his first coming. He's going to give them enough to be leaning forward and saying, but yeah, but when will that happen? Notice with me then this other aspect. Christ's purposeful second coming. Now you're in Isaiah 61, and you're beginning to see the tension between to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, first coming, and the day of vengeance of our God, second coming. And you know that year is a much longer extended period of time, metaphorically, than the idea of a day. He's saying that that period of grace, that period of mercy was long-lasting. But the day of vengeance, the day of justice is short and it's swift, but it's certain. And justice is not pitted against grace. Grace and justice are two sides of that same coin which you find at the cross of Jesus Christ where Jesus Christ died for sinners. That's grace. And Jesus 
paid the penalty. That's justice. And now there is still to come that time of justice. But this is why the people in the time period of Jesus were expecting a political savior to come along and bring on justice and vengeance against their oppressors. And God is saying, I'm not done yet. Not done. And Jesus didn't lead them on. Notice where he stopped in his reading. And where he stopped, he then said, Fulfilled. That's your Savior. You see the powerful integrity as he's now combining the first and the second comings. Haven't you been struck over the course of these last days of this Chinese ship trying to reach a trapped expedition, expedition vessel in the Antarctic? And now the rescue ship needs to be rescued? Part of the irony there. And compare that to what took place in a prior era where a biographer states that while on one of his expeditions to the Antarctic, Ernest Shackleton was compelled to leave some of his men on Elephant Island with the intention of returning for them and carrying them back to England. But he was unavoidably delayed, and by the time he could go for them, he found to his dismay that the sea had frozen over, and the men, they were cut off. And three times he tried to reach them, but his efforts ended in failure. And finally, in his last effort, he found a narrow channel through the ice. And guiding his small ship back to the island, he was delighted to find his men not only alive, but well. Yet all prepared to get aboard. And they were soon on their way to safety and home. After the excitement ended, Shackleton asked, how was it that they were ready to get on board so promptly? Get this. They told him that every morning their leader rolled up his sleeping bag and said, Get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. Not only first coming, second coming. Jesus stopped where he did. They're leaning forward, wanting more. Oh, there will be more. God's not done yet. It's highly purposeful. He extends grace, but grace is not infinite. Only God is. Then comes justice. Grace is long. Justice is swift. Christ's purposeful first coming. Verse 1 to the first part of verse 2. Christ's purposeful second coming. Second part of verse 2 to verse 3. But there's another fulfillment I want you to see here. It's this. That through Christ's ministry... God fulfills His promise for His people. Now, I don't know about you, 
But I haven't hung out recently with any Jebusites. Haven't gone biking with any Hittites. Haven't gone out for a run with any Amorites. But I have hung out with Israelites. The very fact that Israel regained national status in 1948 for me would be enough to put faith and trust in Jesus. All the other ites have passed off the scene except for maybe termites. But beyond that, what we've got here is Israelites, you see. And while generation after generation after generation of Jews have faced this onslaught of satanic attack against God's purposeful plan, the, the purpose and the promise merge together. And now as Ezekiel 37, 38, and so forth have enunciated, we begin to see the global plan unfolding. What I see now occurring in God's sovereignty are three aspects to this promise. I'm just simply going to draw out for you, and you can process with me in the hours to come before the Packers beat the Bears. And the first is found in verse 6. I want you to notice with me the promise of priests and ministers here is fulfilled. Because in verse 6, you and I are informed, and you will be called priests of the Lord, and you'll be named ministers of our God. Shades of Exodus chapter 19 where God had made a promise that the Jewish people would be priests and ministers to the nations. But they turned inward rather than sharing the light to the the nations. And now what God is saying via Isaiah, I'm fulfilling that promise, and you will be what I have called you to be, that force that's going to draw people's attention to Messiah. And thus that future movement of the Spirit among the Jews. Ponder that what's happening right now. Ponder the relationship of Russia to Iran, to Syria. Get some maps and follow along what's happening in the Middle East. Evaluate right now what has happened within the last hours where once again... There has been attack upon Israeli soil. Here's a second. Here's a second aspect to that promise. That the promise of the everlasting covenant is fulfilled. Verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. And I mock that word everlasting, and I think about 1948, and once again, they receive not only nation status, they get their land. I tie it to jubilee and the cancellation of debt and the return of land. And then I go to Genesis chapter 17, and I find this, this covenantal statement, the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God And I'm processing, aren't you, what's happening right now in the Middle East. 
that this is an everlasting thing. And just as three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead because this was to be an eternal king. Likewise, after this period of dormancy, in this case for that land, the land is returned to Israel, and we see that God is the promise keeper, and there is this everlasting possession, an everlasting covenant with them. And Abraham got it in Genesis 17. It's an everlasting possession, this land, and you and I are seeing it. Thus we understand the tensions when Hezbollah strikes again, as we've seen in the last few hours. But we're not done. Because dramatically he draws your attention to the third aspect of this promise, verse 9. That their descendants will be known among the nations. And their offspring among the peoples. Offspring is the word seed. Very same word which was used in that promise given to Eve regarding her seed. Who would crush the serpent's head. You see all this? You're fitting all this together? And I will make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and I'll make your name great. And you'll be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And yet this is exactly now reiterated and expanded upon by Isaiah in this incredible verse 9. And what you've done is just bridge Christmas to New Year's. And you've bridged purpose with promise. And you've bridged first coming with second coming. And you're busy distinguishing between the timeless, the timely, and the time-bound. 50,000, 50,000 of 67,000 Swiss watchmakers went out of business because they failed to embrace the new. There's a new birth. It comes in the form of when we put our faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. New birth people are new creation people. And there's something more significant than a new year. It's a new birth found in Christ alone. Do you know him as your Savior? Let's stand together. We see how you brilliantly combine all these, what could be, disconnected dots and create this incredible scene, this incredible picture of your plan, of your purpose, of your promise. We can be overwhelmed when you think about how you take all these matters and put them together so that they are digestible. So I pray that anybody who comes here today, spiritually curious, finds that their, their heart now is aching and longing and hungering for more. 
pray now they will put faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Give them that new heart that comes with Christ as Savior. And for this, Father, we'll give you all the praise, all of it, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.